Mary, there we go, Mary. It was my fault. It was my fault, Mary. Here we go. You got to turn it on. Here we go, here we go, here we go. Love you, thanks for turning out. Let's pray, let's go. Epiphany 4. The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Romans 8. Almighty God, who set your Son over the works of your hands so that even the winds and the sea obey him, we pray, give power to your word that your kingdom may grow and increase in power in all creation delivered into the glorious liberty of your children. Through Christ our Lord, amen. amen. Sorry for the pause there. Now you see that's quite a reformed prayer. You pre-sems take note. One of the things that, I mean, as it's coming from the minister's prayer book, that was a great sadness for me. C.S. Lewis once said, the reason the liturgy shouldn't change is because you don't want to have to critique it. You just want to confess it. So I came to this line that says, give power to your word, which is not a Lutheran sort of prayer, not a New Testament sort of prayer either. The word has power in and of itself, you know. The word, big W incarnate, speaks words that are empowered. It's the gospel for today. He speaks words and they happen. Um, this is the reason why Lutheran pastors don't pray in the pulpit, and Reformed pastors do. This is sort of Karl Barth stuff. But Lutherans don't need to, you know, pray to the baby Jesus that he would please empower his word and make it work. Believe me, it's full of power all by itself. And you don't need to ask it to be anything more. You might pray that the hearers, that it might have its way with the hearers, but it's a bit odd to say, you know, give power to your word. That's just not, uh, hey, that's not us. So there you go. Um, don't buy this book. You can see it's not, you know. All right, anyway. Uh, put some money in the basket. We're 100 bucks short of 1000 bucks for the boiler. That'll be matched funds, so it'll be 2000 bucks for the soup kitchen at St. Matthew's. So, you know, throw a little money in the basket. Life's good. Thanks for coming out in the snow. Uh, we had a little smaller number this morning. It'd be interesting to see if we have a little more, if everybody will just stay in. Please be careful as you're out and around. Let me make the final pitch for the men's retreat. Um, you know, in Hebrews, there's the thing about, you know, don't forsake the assembly, because by, you know, coming to the assembly, you encourage other people. You know, the broadest New Testament exegesis stretches that out to include drinking beer with your friends. So, um, what are you, not paying attention this morning? Let's go. <laughs> so let's ramp it up here just a little bit, okay? So, uh, you know, I mean, there's always like, it's Friday and I don't know, and should we come, and how about a friend? Here's the thing, you should come. If you're, uh, you know, if you checked mail on the gender box, and you're a member of St. John, you should be there. So, uh, I mean, it could not be easier. You come, it's free food and free beer. Think about this. And it's free breakfast. It's free bacon in the morning. Think about this, okay? It, could, it doesn't get any better than this. So uh, there may not be a free lunch, but there is at St. John free dinner and free breakfast. Pete Ladick's coming to get you ready for Ash Wednesday and into Lent, so that'll be good. Pete's an interesting guy. And then uh, next, next week at this time, no Bible study, the time and talents thing is next door, and you can come and be amazed by all the things that your friends are doing here at St. John. Special, special thanks to the guys who shovel snow, Steve Chester, but you know I noticed a bunch of... It's just nice, yeah, and it's really good. I also, I also noticed a lot of guys who aren't Steve Chester. I probably saw three or four different guys who aren't Steve Chester just grab a shovel at the door and start shoveling on their way in. I mean, that's very, very nice. That's a great kindness for other people, so thanks for doing that. Okay, um, be careful when you go out. Questions about anything? We doing okay? Everybody's doing okay? Yes, my friend. Now, here's the thing. At my advanced age, I realized that I'd given you eight two times. Did you notice that? Well, there was eight and eight A. There was eight and then eight and then eight A. 
This Bible study has been particularly challenged in this way. My computer blew up and I lost, you know, between four and eight, so I had to go back and try to recover those. And, um, you know, so it's been incidents and accidents all the way along. But I'm sorry about that. But th you can trust that this is 10. All right? Just to go with it, okay? Just the church. This is what the church wants blind obedience. There's. <laughs> Just, 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 you know, just go with it, okay? No, really, I, I screwed up. I, I, I was, because I had to reconstruct it, I'm like, what in the world? Even I can't figure this out. So, all right, y'all good? All right, so, you know, it's all there in the text, and, uh, you know, come on, this is all it is. It's uh, be present, be kind, listen, ask a question, tell a story, maybe. And, you know, the whole, the whole point of this is not to be a dork. So, um, this whole notion of, uh, you know, you knock, the way people come to church is if you knock on the door and threaten them with the fires of hell. I mean, good luck. If you have a tent and it's 1860, maybe. But if you live in postmodern America, uh, it's probably going to be the kindness that you express. Now, we've talked about the challenge from the one side that sort of humanists have sort of claimed that ground, and so it has to be kindness wrapped around the cross. But we shouldn't have any trouble with that as long as we stick with the lectionary. So you have a really interesting, uh, you have a really interesting story today, and I just want to start with, um, you know, this is one of the saddest stories I think for me in all of Scripture. This is a very, very sad story. This is the best offer that Jesus ever made to anybody. He basically said to this guy, "You can come and be disciple number thirteen." It's a fascinating story, and there's a, there's a love there and a genuine disappointment that this um, young man can't come along. Now we can talk about why he can't come along, but here, here's a really interesting thing. This is another perspective. We've talked about how Jesus has gone after really big sinners and how Jesus has kind of made room for a lot of people. But the other side of the equation is, is that Jesus often makes room for really good people. And frankly, that all good people are not your enemy. So often we sort of go with the mindset that people will be resistant to this or there. My experience really is, if you just engage people just a little bit, you don't have to get very deep to get to their restless heart. But we often have so many layers built up, our expectations, our presuppositions about people, you know, our churchliness, you know, our otherworldliness, our untouchable stuff, all the things we've talked about and tried to break down. But really, you know, come with the notion that people's hearts really are restless and Jesus has for that forgiveness and peace. Okay? It doesn't always stick, and you'll see even here, Jesus, you know, um, Jesus has some genuine disappointment about this not working. Grab a Bible, Luke 18. Okay, here we go. Um, 18, 18. There's a fascinating bit of uh, stuff going on in Luke 18. We've done before the widow and the judge and the Pharisee and the publican. It's just a great, you know, it's a great story, the Pharisee and the publican. In fact, this story is just kind of a mere image of Pharisee and the publican. And in the middle, you have this thing that says where Jesus says the church belongs to infants. So you've got to think about that. 1818, uh, a ruler asked him, good teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? Nobody is good but God himself. So I already have a couple things going on here. Words can be ambiguous. Um, it's possible that this is a formality, good teacher. It's possible that um, it's a bit sassy. It's possible that it's just... Um, almost respectful, it's, it's difficult to understand what it is exactly. But Jesus, as you've seen in the past couple of times we've done these stories, is uncharacteristically blunt with people. And so the great distinction from my wife, the difference between honest and brutally honest, 
You know, Jesus is honest. He's not brutally honest, but Jesus actually demands uh, already some thoughtfulness from the guy. You know, what's good and why do you talk about me as good? Only God is good. We can come back to that. You know the commandments. Don't commit adultery. Don't kill. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. All mixed up. So we have to ask ourselves, why are the commandments all mixed up? Why do they all come from the second table? Right? What's going on there? By the way, the answer is in the psalm that we sing today. There's a beautiful second last line in, in the second stanza. It's a much more helpful way of talking about it. He said, the, the psalm goes, and we are the people that you shepherd. That's a very, very nice way to talk about Jesus. We are the people that you shepherd. That's just, I mean, that's the gospel. It doesn't get better than that. He said, I have observed all these from my youth. So we'll have to check that. Um, but, you know, this is something that could be said of all of you. You're fairly respectable people. Jesus said, Jesus heard it, Jesus said, one thing you lack, sell all that you have, distribute it to the poor, and you'll have a treasure in heaven and come follow me. So that's sort of interesting. Um, that can rub your Lutheran bones the wrong way. In New, Te- in, in New Members yesterday, we talked a little bit about Jesus, the rewards Jesus gives in heaven, which is not how Lutherans always talk, but they should, since Jesus <laughs> talks that way, and so does Paul. Okay. And then Jesus looking at him said, I'm sorry, when he heard it, he became sad, for he was very rich. And Jesus, looking at him, how hard it is for those who are rich to enter the kingdom of God. It's hard for rich people to be saved. Frankly, it's hard for poor people to be saved, too, but that's a different story. The notion of noble poor, noble rich, you should just lose the notion. It's just that people have particular temptations, and money is a severe one. Okay? It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And they said, who can be saved? And he said, what's impossible with men is possible with God. And Peter said, hey, we did it. We left our homes, we followed you. And uh, he said to them, Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, there's no man who's left his house or wife or brothers or parents or children. Now you're going to have to fold that back into the initial gambit. For the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive manifold more in this time and in the age to come, eternal life. Okay, so that's the text. We've got to figure this out. Everybody good? You good? I gave you um, the other text at the end if you want a bit more general. We'll just try this. All right. So point three. We start with the notion that everybody is an enemy. Okay? Here's a guy who's genuinely interested. And you should, um, you know, sometimes, in some ways, I, I'm quite happy that the notion of uh, America as a Christian nation is fading. Partly because it's not true, and partly because it gets in the way a lot. You know, it's co-opted in so many, many ways, okay? And what happens then is you get this particular thing that is called Christian that often doesn't look like the church and is used for all kinds of different purposes, and it kind of sets us up against other people. It's much more interesting in the early church where, um, I, I don't know if you know, there's a, there's a, there's a very famous letter um, in the 200s of the, that was written in the 200s that... Um, at one point, the emperor said, we want to have a holocaust and exterminate these Christians in a particular place. And he said, go gather the ev- evidence and tell me. It was basically, we're going to kill them. Go tell me the reasons why we're going to kill them. And this, reason, this, this letter comes back. We run it as a margin comment occasionally. This letter comes back and he says, you know, you can do what you want, but these people are not like other people. These people care for the sick and they give food to the poor and they bury the dead and they're really, really kind to each other. And then the sort of the pregnant phrase is, you know, 
these people are not like other people. That's a very interesting way to talk about the church. So in some sense, when Jesus talks about the church as being otherworldly, we are otherworldly. You know, we're in the world but not of the world. That's a difficult trick. It certainly doesn't mean that we, we are the world or the same as the world, that we look the same as the world. We, we look different than the world. And frankly, if the world was working out so well, we wouldn't have so blasted much trouble. So think about it this way. Jesus has something that people need. Or you have something that other people want. And it's the delivery so often um, that gets in the way. All I'm asking you to do is be a real human being, to be present, to be kind, to listen. That would separate you from about 97% of the people in the world, right? Be present, be kind, listen. It's so difficult for people to listen because everybody wants to talk because that's how we make our way in the world. Be present, be kind, listen. Maybe ask a question. Who can be saved? Maybe tell a story. It's like a camel and a needle. Okay, so here we go. Um, some folks have restless hearts. And how do they come to uh, know their need of God? So basically, this guy comes to Jesus and said, Hey, I'd like what you've got. I'm turning the page. It could, in fact, happen to you because of the way you live, right? Presume, then, that there are some, f- some folks who actually want to know what to do. There are some people who actually are interested in eternal life. There's actually still people who believe they have a soul. There's still people who believe that there's something after death. There's still people who actually want what you've got. I always think about how much bravery it takes to cross the threshold and come into a church, especially if you're not a Christian. And it's a blasted miracle that anybody ever turns up in the new members class. What people discover is that we often have what they want, but that the, the way is sort of narrow. And, you know, it's the parable of how things, you know, grow and don't grow. It can become very, very difficult. But that's why it's so tremendously important to what people see in you is great acceptance, great kindness, not judgment, great love. That's why it's so important. The church has often made its, ang- its reputation on anger and fear, which is completely opposite Jesus. Jesus isn't angry at all. Jesus is not afraid of anything. Jesus gently, in, in, in Epiphany, especially in Mark's Gospel, the Gospel we do this year, Jesus just moves from terrorizing situation to terrorizing situation, one after another. He comes with this great gravitas. Everybody else is rattled. Jesus is calm. Nobody else knows what to do. Jesus knows what to do. Jesus does it. He lets the chips fall where they may. And people are attracted to that. That's, that's the idea. That's what it is to be in the way of Jesus. Not to react but rather to give the gifts that have been given to us, okay? So, um, when anybody expresses any sort of, and so this is the thing you need to watch for, when any, anybody expresses any sort of restlessness of the soul, I told you I had this, you know, I went to, last year when we went to Parents Weekend to see Lane, to see, see my daughter, you know, her roommate, we started talking. Within three minutes, you know, I mean, she said something that nobody's ever said to me before at that age, which is, I, she said something and I said, uh, she was talking about some spiritual thing, and she, I said, you know, I'm a pastor. She goes, I know you're a pastor. That's so cool. I'm like, what are you, a weirdo? <laughs> I mean, honestly, I don't think, any, but I have, the, universally, uh, kids who are 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, to talk to them, they actually, it's so, so interesting. This is why postmodernism, I welcome it so much, because there's an openness, an openness that is not there 
there's a faux openness in people who are 50 and 60. They act like they're open, but they know everything. Quite the opposite with young kids. They're open, and while they have a lot of ideas, they don't actually claim to know uh, quite so much. Instead, they experiment with a lot of things. So it's important then is to get your oar in the water. It's important to make an apologetic. We talked about this. It's important to be kind, to listen, and then to say a good word, precisely what Jesus does here. So here's somebody who's actually interested. I mean, this is the guy who's actually saying, and this is how it often comes up. And if you listen, you will see. This is why kids are interested in meditation. This is why kids take LSD, the kind that are not just interested in. I mean, there's a, there's a, whole, there's a whole group of people who take hallucinogenics for, you know. But there's a whole group of people who take it, if you talk to them, who take it as a program to sort of expand the mind, expand the soul. I'm not arguing for it. Uh, but it's a very interesting, it tells you something about them, okay? Um, there's a whole group of people who are given to disciplines, like the weirdest one I heard lately is um, this diet, I mean, this is just, it, diet is one place that often shows up, like this, I met this kid who was on this diet, I'm like, you know, because people are always, when you take your kids' friends to eat, and I mean, try to find a restaurant that is pleasing to everybody who's non-dairy vegan, don't eat fish. But I mean, you start to say, like, we'll take your friends to dinner. It's like, it's not Portillo's, okay? It used to be six hot dogs and we're out. Now it's like, I'm like, so what do you eat? And they're like, I eat. I, so here's the thing. I become the things I eat. What does that mean? Cows are big and slow. If I eat cows, I become big and slow. Fish are smooth and quick. If I eat fish, I'm smooth. Are you getting this? I'm like, if you eat a cabbage? I mean, what? Of course, you, the thing is you can't say that because then you're a dork. See, that just that moved into dork category right there. But the thing is, you can't, you, can't, you, can't, you can't scorn them because, frankly, have you ever looked at what Portillo's puts on that hot dog? I mean, you're just as big a dork as they are. The point is, is that there are people who are actually interested, and they're willing to do all kinds of things. People are... You know, the way people treat their bodies, what they eat, what they do, how they sleep, you know, what they take, you know, that's not food items. Uh, I, you know, and you get this, I put it here, as the often I'm spiritual but not religious. Okay, which is um, okay because, as you know, religio, the Latin root for religious, is the word for slavery. And so, um, you know, Jesus, Jesus talks about the way. You know, follow me. You know, Acts, they talk about the way. And next, sorry, talk about religion. Religion is to be, the root word for religion is to be enslaved. So we normally don't talk about that way. We just talk about Christ and his way. Okay? So you have to engage all of this stuff. But you'll also notice, and this is very postmodern, and it's very modern as well, there's always the question of what I'm doing. You see how easily this shifts to what I'm doing. Now, I talk to you all the time about what you're doing, but I also talk to you in the way of sanctification. So there's justification, which is being forgiven, and there's sanctification, which is living forgiven. right? And you can't uncouple the two, but first it's the being forgiven, that comes as complete gift, and then there is the living forgiven, which is you know the cooperation with the Holy Spirit. That's how the confessions talk. And you just keep the two things clear, and then you don't get all nervous about working your way to heaven, which is often the block that Lutherans use when they don't want to do any good works. It's a great sadness, you know? So you do, though, have to observe it in this guy. Uh, I give you the uh, kind of the, um, you know, I give you the in bold there, 1818, kind of the literal translation is good teacher, by doing what? 
This is a very, by doing what? This is a very common question for people who have restless souls. By doing what shall I inherit eternal life? So, you know, Steve Jobs, you know, kind of last words, at least how they reported, were, um, you know, this is fantastic, this is wonderful, right? And you're like, is that really what happened? And then you ask yourself, you know, what was going on there? And then you remember he was baptized in Missouri Synod Lutheran, and then you remember that he gave it up because his pastor couldn't answer all his questions. At least that's how the story is told about him. So, you know, there's a lot going on here. But you should be ready then. So here already the stories have changed. We started with people who were in trouble or people who were outcast. Now he's somebody who's incast. In fact, we have a very respectable human being who has very common questions and very common assumptions. He's the kind of guy you'd like to go to dinner with. He's a nice guy. He's respectable. All these things I've kept from my youth. So this is the kind of people that live in Wheaton, Illinois, right? These are the kind of people you're going to bump into. But if you hang around with them for a little while, you will see that it normally boils down to, my heart is restless and what do I do? My heart is restless and what do I do? And you'll find that most people have chosen to do something. They've chosen to exercise, take drugs, change their diet, you know, learn to meditate, just name the number of things. You can't react to that. It's just, it's, it's self-treatment. It's just like this guy. His self-treatment is to go to the latest, smartest guy in town. I mean, he's just mistaken Jesus for Tony Roberts. It's okay. You know, it'll probably work out. So just stick with him. In order to, ma- uh, so point five, what does Jesus do? Jesus smashes anything that's not a gift. So there's only one commandment, and that commandment is don't have idols. And the way you get rid of your idols is to smash them. And if you don't smash them, the Lord will be very happy to smash them for you. But that's a particularly painful process. So what happens is that Jesus now takes the guy, and and I actually had a long talk with the vicar uh, the other day about pastors who imitate Luther. It's not a good idea, okay? He was a blasted genius. He was also a big pain in the butt. He was also under a death sentence. So very often you'll run into pastors. So he's under a lot of stress, right? So you often run into pastors who are complete idiots, and then they sort of suffer for being a complete idiot, and then they're convinced they're faithful because they suffered without saying that I suffered for being an idiot. And if you ask them about it, they'll often say, well, I'm just doing what Luther did. And Luther wrote some bombastic stuff and did some crazy things. He's also a genius, so you, know, you get some ex- you get excuse for that. But if you're an idiot and you appeal to Luther, you've just missed like 500 or 600 years of what's gone on, okay? So don't do that. We don't live in, you know, we're two epochs and maybe three away from that, right? Reformation, modern world, dead now, nothing you can do about it, and the postmodern world upon us, you might as well join it because there's nothing you can do about it, it's here. So, what you do is, as in all of life, you create your own reality. Or, more practically, you turn vices into virtues. So the question is, and this is exactly what Jesus does. So this guy comes, he's got a restless heart, and he's sure that he can do something in order to save himself. That's very, very common. Completely respectable guy. But note that Jesus doesn't treat him as an enemy. Jesus doesn't treat him as he's stupid. Jesus doesn't treat him as if he should have known this from a long time ago. Jesus is just kind to him, and Jesus listens to him. Okay, point five. In order to smash anything that's not a divine gift, we start with Jesus something that only God is good. There's a great argument among New Testament scholars about whether the guy is confessing that Jesus is God or not. 
you know, it's a coin flip and it doesn't really matter as much for here. When Jesus says, who's, he says, good teacher, and then Jesus sort of tweaks the question and says, who's good but God himself? In some ways, he is calling, you know, he's at least asking the question, right? He's present, he's kind. Now he asks the question, who's good but God himself? He actually opens the door and gives the guy a chance to say, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. The guy doesn't go there, for sure. But at least he opens the possibility that that's what's happening, okay? But the text also, of course, gives you the chance. I'm flipping the page. Either way, this is just above six, Jesus shifts the focus from us to God. So basically what he's done is confess the central part of what a Jew or a Hebrew would know, that God is good and he alone is good, right? Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God, right? So basically what Jesus does is very cleverly, as a rabbi to a Pharisee, very cleverly Jesus both establishes a connection with the guy, but also he, he sort of ruffles his feathers by asking a question, who's good but God alone? And what will the guy say to that? Will he just reassert that God is good? Will he reassert that Jesus is the son of the living God? What will happen now? Will he maintain the fact that he can be as good as God or part way to God? Will he let God do it all? What's going to happen? That's the question, okay? Now, Jesus, and this is good for us because if you live, you know, in a pretty white suburb um, that's well-to-do, these are probably the two things that are most important to you, family and money. It's so interesting. This is how Jesus shepherds the guy. This is, this is what it is to have a pastor. So Jesus, and now we're at slight disadvantage because we can't read hearts, okay? So Jesus is just a little faster than we are. But eventually, you can get it if you just watch. But, I mean, Jesus has the ability to kind of look inside the guy and so he can put the, it's like those, it's like the IQ test where they like say put it together. Like cakes, it'd be like you. If they put if you were sitting next to Jesus and they put one here and Jesus like here, and the guy'd say, Do you know how this is? You know, you arrange it, arrange it in this pattern, you know how they go? So they go, All right, ready? One, two, three, go. Jesus would go, done. That's how it would be. For you it'd be a little longer. Okay? Might take you a little longer. All right. So and that's what Jesus does. Now Jesus can see. And you say to yourself, why does Jesus mix up the mix up the commandments and only quote from the second table? A bunch of reasons, I would suggest to you. I mean, you don't have to take any of this, you know, for what it is. But I think one is he's already given the first table when he says, who's good but God alone. So as you all know, there's only one commandment. There aren't any other commandments. The only commandment is love God. Don't have any other gods. That's the only commandment. That's the text. Everything else in the entire scripture is commentary. I mean, we could have one commandment, not ten commandments, and of course, now don't make me make on the riff about how it doesn't say commandment in the scripture. It actually says words, so they're actually gospel, not law. Okay, but you've heard that a thousand times before. They do, it doesn't say commandment in the text, right? It doesn't. And they're given as gospel, not law. They're given as great joy. I'll be your God. You'll be my people. You can have my name, and I'll bless you every Sabbath. When you leave the temple, tabernacle, synagogue, don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal. Love your kids. Be faithful to your wife or your husband. Honor your father and your mother. Be happy with what you've got. And your life will be spectacular. Is that judgment and law? Or is that gift and blessing? Well, every word works two ways. It starts as gift and blessing. Of course, if you run against it like you run against Jesus, you'll have him as your enemy. So he loves this guy by directing him. First he says to him, God's the only Holy One. Then he leaves the question hanging about, about whether Jesus is the Holy One, the Son of God. 
So he gives him the first commandment, actually. And then very pastorally, he looks at the guy and he says, these seem to be the things that you're struggling with. Actually, it's better than that because Jesus can see into the guy. But he looks at the guy and he says, these are the things that you struggle with. You're rich, you're a Pharisee. A Pharisee, just to qualify, basically a Pharisee is a very observant businessman. So they're, they're, usually, they're usually good and they usually have a lot of money and they're, usually, they're engaged in decisions. They're, it's basically, imagine, it's an elder in the church, basically. It's a, it's a guy who has a business, has a lot of money, is very observant, comes to church, is a leader, is asked about advice. So uh, what are the dangers when that's who you are? What are the dangers when you live in Wheaton, Illinois? What are the dangers? The two great dangers are, real honestly, money and family. If you think to yourself, have you been, have, has your kid played six-year-old soccer on Saturday morning at 7 in Wheaton, Illinois? It's a blood sport. <laughs> I mean, what kind of guy gets up and gets a double latte and then yells at a 13-year-old referee for an hour at 7 a.m.? Why do you do that? Because your family is most important and your kid is most important of the most important. And if your kid's not getting equal playing time or whatever, right? Or think back a few years when the economy was so bad. You know, what happened? People who had never missed a promotion, never missed a pay raise, even people among us, people are suddenly not just missing a promotion and a raise. They're losing a job. They're losing a car. They're losing a house. They're losing a business. I remember one guy who said to me, I've had the same banker for 15 years. I took him to lunch. He's just completely broken. I had the same banker for 15 years. I called him today, and he said, we don't know you. He said, I've gotten, he said, the directive has come from New York. We can, we, he said, we don't know you. We can't even answer your phone call. Okay. Wow. I mean, talk about having family and money locked together and being a big deal. So think about this way. This guy's kind of a small to medium businessman, very respectable in his church, very generous, apparently very moral, if people looked at him walking down the road. And probably, this is really important for the context, probably tied to a very prominent family. Because the way Jesus analyzed the situation, it's kind of like the money and the family are tied together. It's kind of like there's a family estate here at risk. So he's basically saying to the guy, wow, you think this thing, this family, the Kennedy compound with all the trust funds and you're playing touch football and cashmere sweaters and over there is the yacht waiting for lunch? See, that's what you think is important, right? Now let's just think that through. And the guy's like, hey, got it. Hey, man, did you look at the compound? The, the yacht. Right? That's what's happening here. And Jesus is going to upside down that here. So, number six, Jesus pushes two things into focus, family and property. So the commandments he quotes are about family. Be loyal to your spouse, honor your parents, don't kill, don't lie, and property, don't steal. Now, of course, um, I've said this to you a gazillion times. There's nothing wrong with either of those. In fact, they're extraordinarily important. In fact, the fact that you have so much to manage is is actually, well, let me just say it this way. God trusts you. God has trust you, trusted you with a lot. God trusted this guy with a lot, too. But God has trusted you with a lot. I mean, your problems are all first-world problems, pretty much. Right? So you and I, we have a particular set of problems, you know, where kids are going to get into schools, IVs or not. You know, whether you're going to get a promotion, how things are going to go for you. You know, we have a particular set of problems. We have other problems, too, but we don't, you know, 
we have, we have kind of first world kind of wheat and that's, that's this guy, right? And they can be reduced and Jesus looks at this and he says, um, the way you have to always think about this is that these are good gifts. And you've done a remarkable job in many ways over the years doing this. We've talked about this. It's one of the good things about the congregation. We're very explicit about these things. You know, we talk very easily about family and we talk very easily about money. Those are two things we always talk about. But just like in this text, it starts with the notion that these things are gifts from God. And if they're not gifts from God, there's only another alternative. And the other alternative is that it's an idol. So everything you've got, now just kind of think about this, everything you've got, you think about your spouse, you think about your kids, you think about your family, you think about the estate. You think about, you know, you think about college, you think about um, what you can do for your kids, you think about their jobs, you think about your job, you think about your future, you think about where you've been, you think about where you're going, you think about grad school, you think about promotions. Everything you're thinking about is a gift from God. And if it's not a gift from God, it's an idol. It might be a small one, it might be creeping toward it, it might be growing. But here's the thing, this is what you can be sure of, that Jesus smashes idols. If you have an idol, Jesus will smash it for you. It's I mean, it's so simple. It's just like so simple. He gives you these things. This is why it's not hard to talk about tithing at all. And this is why we say give 10% and give something to the poor. It's it's just easy to talk to you that way. Why? Because if you understand that all you have is from God, that's not a big deal at all, right? This is why we say, say your prayers, read your scriptures, come to church. This is not hard. This is not hard. If you understand that everything you have is a gift, if you don't understand that it's a gift, you force Jesus to be your enemy and you force him to smash it for you. Please don't do that, right? So, and that's what Jesus is doing to this guy. He, this, is what, this is sort of combination confessor and spiritual director. I would argue that what Jesus is trying to do here is um, bring the guy, he's trying to offer the guy forgiveness, and he's, often, he's also trying to give him sage advice. So when you go for confession and absolution, you get one thing, which is you get your sins forgiven. You confess, I've got these idols, and you're forgiven. And then you also, the other side of it is, is it's not always the same person, but kind of a director who gives you kind of sage advice. This is what wise old men and women of the church are good for. They, you know, they sort of said, yeah, when I was 30, I faced that, or when I was 40, I went through that, or I made this mistake, and I hope you don't make it because it's blasted painful. Okay. So what Jesus has done is he's kind of sized the guy up and he's given very individualized law and gospel care. The best law and gospel is specific. The best pastoral care is individualized. And it's exactly what Jesus is doing. Look, nose to nose, right? We've talked about this in the past. That Jesus usually engages people and forgives people nose to nose, right? Find me a place in the scriptures where absolution isn't nose to nose. Jesus is always right, you know, one on one. This is, the, he, this is the only guy. See, they used to say about Bill Clinton when he'd walk in a room. The reason, you know, politics, whether you loved him or hated him, one of the interesting things about Bill Clinton was when people were before him, they melted. Why? They said, you know, Clinton has the ability to make you feel like you're the only person in the room. In fact, you're the only person in the world. And it's irresistible. I mean, it's very interesting, right? Love him or hate him. You know, that Jesus is focused on this guy and he makes it feel like he's the only guy in the world. All these things I have watched, guarded, protected, preserved, this word can mean all these things, point seven. All these things I've watched, I've guarded them, I've protected them, I've preserved them, I've used them, I've held them dear. I've done this ever since I was a kid. Actually, 
this is great, man. You would love to bump into people like this. This is fantastic. You are so far down the line. And this is why Jesus is going to say, hey, there's just one thing left. It's sort of this great affirmation. This guy isn't an enemy. This is a guy whose heart is beating, but he's still restless. I mean, he's on the way, but he hasn't quite figured it out. Sure, the thing that he's missing is huge, but look how engaged he is. People are not your enemy. This whole notion that, that, that somehow we, we have to have enemies and they're against us and we don't fit, forget all of that. Be present, be kind, listen, ask a question. Who's good but God alone? Here's a story. Camel and needle. Okay, so I'm flipping the page. It's almost quarter till. Uh, or maybe not. You know, this is the, always the other side. And I, I have a, you know, one of my bad habits is expecting too much of people. And I told you that John Kleinig kind of helped break me of this by once when I was sort of pouring this out to him, you know, this great pregnant phrase, you know, Bruzek. Satan is an idealist. Jesus is a realist. It's one of the great phrases to live by. Satan is an idealist. Jesus is a realist. If you expect too much of yourself, you expect too much of your congregation, expect too much of your spouse, your kids. If you can't believe that somebody disappointed you, if you can't believe that this young Pharisee isn't better than he is, if you can't see that he's got all these things that are going right, he actually does try to observe the law, but he's got this huge hole over here where he's like, he thinks it's about him and it's not about the baby Jesus which is what it is to be a Pharisee, to be proud, right? Holy cow. He's self-aware, but he's still self-centered. And he has this, this notion that he's a pretty good guy. And if you have the notion you're a pretty good guy, then you don't have, you don't need Jesus. Last thing, I was kind of watching, you probably did too, you couldn't avoid it. You kept, kept clipping onto Ernie Banks' funeral yesterday. I mean, apparently Ernie went to church. Apparently, none of the people who were at church thought that Ernie needed to go to church. <laughs> I mean, here's the thing. If your pastor will lie at your funeral, he'll lie any time. If you lie at the funeral point, you'll lie about anything. This is why we don't have eulogies in the church. It's very hard for people to come from outside. They always want to stand up and say what a great guy somebody is. Except, you know, there's a business partner there and they stole from them and there's a child there who was molested by them and there's a wife there who knew he had an affair and... But everybody wants to get up and say what a great guy he was. That's why we don't have eulogies, because people are usually lying. So what we do do is preach the gospel. We say stuff like, whoa, damn sinner. But Jesus loves damn sinners, and so this is probably working out. I mean, that's, and that's exactly what's going to go on here, all right? That's where we'll pick up next time. Love you. Here we go. <laughs> Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Come to the men's retreat. What time does it start? Does anybody know? 6.15? So there'll be uh, drinks and hors d'oeuvres and a dinner available from 6.15, the Hilton and Lyon, Lyle. Even if you didn't sign up, show up. Bring a friend. Even if you didn't sign up for a friend, show up. And then next week, um, no new members because we'll be at the men's retreat. And time and talent at this time next door next week. Thank you.